This podcast, number 849, with Dr. Greg Hammer, is brought to you by Dr. Allison Kay, author of a new book entitled The Dragon Creatrix, Conversations with a Feminine Spiritual Teacher for These New Times. In our interview together about her new book, we discuss the many facets that affect and block the flow of many different types of energy that we seek to bring into our life, such as abundance energy. This book covers topics such as love, money, sex, body image, relationship harmony, just to name a few. If you want to learn more about Dr. Allison Kay, please visit her website at www.alisonjkay.com. And now for a featured podcast, please listen to my interview with Dr. Greg Hammer about his new book, Gain, G-A-I-N, Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Greg, as I do every time, I like to thank the listeners because they come from around the world. Uh, there's always more. Um, I don't know how they're finding me, but they're finding me because of all the channels. And I just thank them. And today, joining me, are you in Carmel today or are you in Palo Alto? I'm uh, on Stanford campus where I live. Okay. So he's on Stanford campus, and we're going to be speaking about his new book called Gain Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. Um, And uh, just so everybody knows, I'm going to let them know a tad bit about you based on your bio from your website. And for my listeners, if you want to learn more about uh, Dr. Greg Hammer, go to greghammermd.com. Greg is a pediatric intensive care physician, pediatric anesthesiologist, professor at Stanford University Medical Center, and a number one best-selling author, a member of the Stanford WellMD Initiative, and the Wellness Committee for the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Greg is currently the chair of the Physicians Wellness Task Force and the California Society for Anesthesiologists. He's been a visiting professor and lecturer on wellness at institutions worldwide and teaches GAIN, which is what we're going to be speaking about in his book here, to medical students, residents, and fellows at Stanford. Well, Greg, um, you... You really are vulnerable in this book, um, and I want to acknowledge that and thank you for that because I think um, we heal through the pain and suffering of what we are welcome to be vulnerable with. And you mentioned, though, in the introduction that most healthcare professionals have not bridged the gap between science and practice, um, that most physicians have not translated their understanding of the mind and the body into a peaceful, present mind and a vibrant, healthy body. Um, probably because they're all so damn busy. Um, how would you propose that they start this transition toward a more, I'm going to say, balanced lifestyle? Because look, you you live that lifestyle and you made your transition. So I'm hoping you can help whoever out there is a nurse, a doctor in healthcare who's listening to this, uh, and actually almost anybody. Uh, make this transition? Well, it's great to be with you, Greg. And and that's, of course, a central question. I would say that uh, 
there are many ways to kind of frame the answer to that question, but uh, my own particular context would be to understand that we have some innate, more or less hard wiring. I would say it's really soft wiring because it's modifiable. Um, And that includes uh, that we have a negativity bias that we tend to remember and hold on to negative experiences and thoughts. Uh, we We tend to forget the positive ones. And the other quality that we have that interferes with our happiness is that we have an obsession with the past and the future. And I would say, while it's adaptive to consider the past with regard to mistakes we've made, we want to learn from those and we want to savor the wonderful memories that we have. Mm -hmm. And likewise with the future, it's adaptive to plan to put bread on the table. In my case, uh, as an intensivist and anesthesiologist, I want to, contemplate the worst things that can happen so that I can plan for them in case they do and plan to prevent them. Uh, And it's also adaptive to look forward to great times with our loved ones. But beyond that, when we think of the future excessively, we tend to, because of our negativity bias, catastrophize. We think of the worst thing that may happen and we kind of fixate on that, even though that thing will probably never come to be. And with regard to the past, when we overthink things in the past, we tend to have shame and regret and remorse. And these are things that healthcare providers can certainly relate to. We've all had circumstances by virtue of which if we had done something differently, uh, even just a few minutes earlier, the patient would have had a better outcome. And so we fixate on that and we beat ourselves up We judge ourselves most harshly. Uh, and we also have an obsession with the future, like what's going to happen tomorrow? How many patients do I have to see? Um, what is my day like? And so these two qualities that we have that are soft wired, uh, our minds are so soft wired, uh, our negativity bias and our obsession with thoughts of the future and the, and the past take us away from where happiness resides. Mm-hmm. I think we can all appreciate that happiness resides in the present. So when we're taking a walk in the forest and we're appreciating the light filtering down through the canopy of leaves uh, 100 or 200 feet above us, we're not thinking about what happened yesterday or what might happen tomorrow. We're right there at that moment, and that's why we feel so much peace. You know, it's been said that, first of all, all that all 7 billion of us want is happiness. And it's also been said that Happiness is peace in motion, and peace is happiness at rest. Mm -hmm. And so it's those moments when we feel peace and happiness that we are in the present moment. That's where peace and happiness live. So the questions are, uh, can we rewire our minds to be more positive? And also, can we rewire our minds to be more present? And uh, I can frame those questions in the context of healthcare workers. And that's what I've tried to do in this book. And yes, I think we can rewire our minds. And yes, we can find happiness. And I think that, you know, the interesting thing is you talk about living in the imagined future and and, and or the dead past and not in the present. And, you know, I just had Ashley Willens' interview with Time Smart. 
And, you know, she said in the, you, you take a Buddhist philosophy because you speak about it in the book. Um, in the Eastern culture versus the Western culture, we, all the studies indicate that we revere the people whose calendars are so full. Yet in the Eastern culture, they revere the people that have time. And the challenge here is really, are we trading off, and her study showed, we'll trade off money for time, when really $10,000 additional only brings like 0.05% additional happiness. So, you know, while her work, while Ashley's work is in on the area of happiness, it's in what is driving us, what are the uh, external and internal motivators that create that. And, you know, one of the things that was very, I said, you, you were vulnerable in this book and you were because you wrote about Max, your son and his demise. It brought you to your knees. And as a result of your own pain and suffering, uh, you had this epiphany and came up with a, a, what I call simple but profound formula. Um, and you talk about it in the book, suffering minus pain times resistance. Um, can you explain what happened when Max died and how you learned to deal with the pain? Sure. Well, you know, Max uh, was found in his apartment. Um, and he may well have had a cardiac arrhythmia. He was living by himself in Portland. Um, he and I were making arrangements for him to come down to Stanford, spend a few days, and suddenly he stopped answering my calls and my texts. And, uh, and then I got a call on a Monday morning indicating that he had been found. And, of course, it was uh, quite a shock, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have especially those of us who have been practicing medicine for a long time, all have had experiences where if we would have done something differently, even moments before, we would have had a better outcome with our patient. And so our professional lives and our personal lives uh, in and out of medicine are, uh, I wouldn't say full of, but they contain tragedy and pain and suffering. It's the human condition, just as joy and happiness are our true nature. Our lives are also filled with pain and suffering. And so the only way for me to deal with my son's death was to sit with it. And during my meditation, really imagine actually opening my heart to the pain and bringing it closer and closer until I had merged with it. There was no separation between this pain and myself, if you can imagine such a thing. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, I realized the pain was not as bad as I had imagined. And uh, you mentioned the formula. The formula in the book is suffering equals pain times resistance. Did I say minus? I'm sorry. It's equal. Maybe. Yeah. But in yeah. any case, uh, yeah. so there is pain the pain of my son's death, the pain of losing a loved one or a patient. And I think we've all lost patients, those of us particularly in high-risk fields, uh, whereby if we'd done something differently, the outcome might have been different. So we have this pain. And if we resist it, if we try to not think about it, for example, the suffering is magnified. So suffering Mm -hmm. equals pain times resistance. And so I realized that the way to manage the pain and minimize the suffering 
was to maximize my acceptance. And so that's what I focused my attention on during those several months after his death. And uh, as you said, it was kind of an epiphany. I realized that we can really rewire the way we think. Our brains have this quality of neuroplasticity, even as we age. And, uh, you know, so that, that became a central part of my practice uh, and part of what became my gain meditation. Well, it's a pivotal point in the book, probably a pivotal point in your life. You state that Max led you to the truth is what you wrote in the book, that you stated that you studied Buddhism in college. Um, and I love the fact that you are a Buddhist or practicing Buddhist, um, and that you created an acronym that you realize that you utilize in your morning meditations. Um, and can you tell the listeners about this GAIN acronym, G-A-I-N, because that's what the book says. Um, Because this is really the focal point of the book for healthcare professionals. You want to bring happiness to healthcare professionals. So each of those letters has a meaning behind it. And how this just this short little practice can bring more peace into their lives. Sure. Well, first of all, I would say that uh, I don't really consider myself a Buddhist. I'm more of a student of Advaita. Uh, which is commonly called non-duality. Okay. Uh, I always had a hard time uh, remembering the 12 ways of this or the seven steps. The four noble truths. You don't remember the four noble truths. (laughs) (laughs) The four noble truths to me are gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. Exactly. Those I can remember. Um, So, but the thing about non-duality is it's, it's about as simple uh, practice as one could possibly imagine. It's it's called the direct path, um, and so I embrace that, and I'm grateful to my teacher Rupert Spira, and uh, look forward to sitting with him again. He and I have become good friends. Um, well, the fact that we're not separated, I think this ego frequently drives us to think that we are separate from the one. And, you know, I went back to school late in life when my son got leukemia. And like you, I started studying spiritual psychology and I got a master's degree in that. But we studied all of those. And I think the important thing is, is that you've come to a realization here through this G-A-I-N that you can help people that maybe don't study this, that don't have an understanding about the dualities of, you know, being connected and went or disconnected because the ego is a very strong thing. Uh, and there's probably, um, and if my understanding, Greg, of working around healthcare professionals is anything, many of them, especially the physicians, maybe not the nurses, is that the ego does get in the way and you got to. <laughs> You got to have it. You have to have it because that's the thing that tells you to make those decisions when you need to make them, right? Right. Well, that's, you know, that's the apparent duality, but really it's, it's, it's non-duality when you kind of get a little bit deeper into it. You know, I think there's two ways of looking at the world, Greg, is the, uh, for the first one is the materialist model where, we have a, a mind and a brain and, and consciousness arises from the mind. 
This is something that we derive through thoughts. And the other way of looking at the world is the consciousness only model. And that is that consciousness is primary and we are all simply perturbations or manifestations of consciousness. And therefore we're not separated. And there is therefore no real separate self, even though it appears that there is. So that to me makes the most sense. And I've obviously done lots of thinking about it. And so I'm, I'm a, believer in the consciousness only model and model and that's uh really part of non-duality i tell my listeners because i've been doing the show for 15 years now and lots of spirituality uh you know everybody from ken wilbur to ram das has been on this show and there's more there's a lot of pathways to the top of the mountain um and everybody who here is listening is a seeker and they're they're all interested in learning more about the way they work and about their connection to a larger uh, universal mind, consciousness, whatever you want to call it, right? So we're all drops of water in that ocean behind you, but we all are part of that ocean. Um, so what would you tell them? What would you inform these healthcare workers that are listening right now about uh, your gain process? Sure. Well, it's, they're actually very, very simple principles. I think what's the truth is in fact, very simple. And so I can perhaps explain best by walking us through a typical gain meditation. So we uh, set our clocks or alarms for, uh, a time maybe three or four minutes before we would otherwise wake up in the morning. So we set our intention in the evening. Instead of getting up at six, we're going to get up at 5.55, let's say. I don't think we'll miss that five minutes of sleep. We can always go to bed five minutes earlier. So we wake up, we open the blinds, we do our morning hygiene, and we find a comfortable and quiet place to sit, whatever position is comfortable. And we close our eyes. and we focus on our breath, which is so central to all forms of meditation and always available to us. And we take a slow breath to a count of four on the inspiration, pause maybe to a count of three, and then exhale without effort slowly to a count of four. And we repeat this sequence a few times, and that actually slows our heart rate, it lowers our blood pressure, uh, it makes us feel calm just in and of itself. And then as we continue to breathe in this fashion, we contemplate that for which we're grateful. The G in gain is gratitude. And we all have so much for which to be grateful. The thing that comes first and foremost to me often is how grateful I am for this day or the subtle sweet smell of the air I'm breathing with my eyes closed for the sounds that are off in the distance and subtle for the love I feel for my family and other loved ones and my brothers and sisters at work and for the privilege of being able to serve as a doctor uh, in a wonderful children's hospital. And, um, you know, as I say in the book, uh, maybe it was 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia and I was just really fatigued and and felt awful. And then eventually got myself in a clinical trial with an immunotherapy drug. And now I take one pill every morning and I'm fine. And there's no sign of leukemia in my blood. Same as my son. He has CML. Yes. And he has been on a drug called Sprycel for, uh-huh. um, let's see, he's 40 years old today. Today's his birthday. 
and he lives in San Rafael, and he has survived it. And the interesting thing is, those Gleevec was first, then it was another one, and now it's another one. But like you, that medicine every day is what keeps him alive. So it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Yeah, it is. For me, so are you still on the medicine, Greg? Yeah, I just okay. take uh, I take one quarter of the original dose, and I right. still have uh, I'm MRD negative, which means that by blood test, there's no sign of CLL in my bloodstream. Good. So, that, so we're talking about gratitude and doing the morning gain meditation, and I think your son and I both probably feel so grateful for every day. When I was diagnosed with CLL, I didn't think I would be alive at this age. Mm-hmm. So gratitude comes easily to me. For that and many other reasons, I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve at work and so on. And then I transition to acceptance. And as we've discussed a little bit already, the thing that comes to me first is my son's death. And I realize I couldn't have changed it. And I certainly can't do anything about it now. And so I actually envision opening my chest and opening my heart almost physically, and I feel this experience of the pain caused by his death coming closer and closer until my heart and that pain are merged, Uh until there's no separation, until I can ask myself the question, can I live with this pain forever? And the answer is yes. In the community, isn't that referred to as Tunglin? Well, it may be. I don't know, to be honest with you. So the type of meditation you're doing actually is called, I go to meditation retreats on the Orcas Islands with some people that, and that where you're breathing in the pain and then breathing out is called Tung Lin. For my listeners who are listening, who understand this, um, probably is the process. So just thought I'd intercede with that. Keep going. Sorry. Again, as I said, I think, Greg, these principles are simple and universal. And so- Mm -hmm. I think everybody can appreciate that gratitude is is fundamental to happiness. That and acceptance. And acceptance is equally fundamental. But you know, right. for gratitude, you can be blind and grateful. You can certainly be poor and grateful, but you won't see a person who is not grateful and happy. And so I think we can all relate to that. Yeah. And with regard to acceptance, you won't see a person who's happy and not accepting of the pain and suffering that are intrinsic to life. And so during the A or acceptance portion of the game meditation, we're just sort of breathing, breathing in our own pain and suffering and, and the global pain and suffering, not only, you know, spread around the globe, especially right now, if you at all plugged into what's happening in the world, you wow. must feel the pain as well as in India, for example, um, and also over the centuries of the way we enslaved uh, people in Africa and pulled them from their culture and their homes and their families and put them in the holds of ships and chained them. and, and The atrocities just- on mankind from the Holocaust to Hiroshima to whatever we've done are amazing that it can even still be around. I know I come from Jewish, Jewish heritage, so I've followed that, and it's hard to believe that Somebody could kill that many people. Um, but again, like you said, resistance doesn't go any good. Acceptance has to be it. Uh, you have to move on and you have to do it with compassion. So what and is you have your... to do it with intention, and that's the I in game. Yep. You know, it's as uh, John Kabat-Zinn 
defined mindfulness, and I'm paraphrasing, but mindfulness is the awareness of the present moment on purpose without judgment. Mm -hmm. And the on purpose is that we can use our powers of intention to rewire the way we think and to guide the way we think toward a more positive way of thinking, you know, in as opposed to this negativity bias that we seem to be born with. And we can use our intention to be more present. And so that's what intention is. And, and I think a great example of the power of intention is a study that's been ongoing at Duke for many years called Three Good Things. And mm. investigators have recruited tens of thousands of subjects and those individuals simply commit to thinking of three good things that happened to them during the day, uh, each evening before they go to sleep. And so for me, for example, the connection that you and I have, Greg, will be one of those elements of my gratitude. Um, Is that Dr. Brantley at Duke? Uh, I think, you know, the name that I associate with it, with it is uh, Brian Sexton, but, you know, it's a group of, of people there. So that Yeah, he, Brantley's been on my show and he wrote the book. He wrote a book called The Three Good Things. So yeah. I'm very familiar with the work that they're doing. So and it's, it, you know, just the simple act of as we're turning down the bed or what have you, it takes no time to think of three positive things that transpired during the day, they've shown that that actually improves our sleep and makes us happier. And that's just a very simple, resonant example of how intention, using our intention to rewire the way we think, can be so beneficial and contribute to happiness. So, so gratitude, so, acceptance, intention. Now we're on and, to end. And the fourth one is non-judgment because, uh-huh. as you know, Greg, we're always, our minds are wired to be comparing one thing to another and to make judgments about our environment, our friends, our family members, and ourselves. We're constantly using labels equivalent to good and bad. You know, this is good, that's bad. He is good, she is bad. And then we point to ourselves with the harshest of judgments. We're not enough. Yeah. <laughs> we're okay. never enough <laughs> so it's exhausting and, it, and yeah. it, it uses a lot of energy these judgments and uh it detracts from our ability to be in the present moment and so oh, yeah that's um, to simply drop the judgment and so in in the gain meditation when i when i pass through intention and i get to non-judgment i i sort of the in my own practice, I visualize the world and I visualize the world exactly as it is without any modifiers, no good, no bad. It's just, it is what it is. It's perfect. It has pain and suffering. It has joy. And, you know, the world is as it is. And then I can turn my thoughts toward myself and accept myself the way I am. I am simply the way I am. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just the way I am. And so this dropping of judgments really contributes to more energy and, and, a, and a happier, more uh, well-aligned energy. And so those are the four elements of gain that we contemplate during the meditation. Then we simply return to the breath for several rounds of controlled, slow breathing. And then we can gradually open our eyes and, and go on 
Well, in the book, you know, you take people through it. So it's there. Um, There's also, I noticed a Q&A. So what I would tell people is, um, this is an easy read. It's not difficult. Uh, The process that Greg is giving you is not difficult to follow. Uh, It's more difficult for you to probably set up we should probably have BJ Fogg on here again, the habit of doing it. Um, because the reality is you want to do this frequently where it becomes ingrained and it's part of your every day. And that's the part that I want to get to now. You speak about the growing problem of burnout in the medical community um, and the high cost to replace a physician. You said like a million dollars in one of your statements of the book. Can you speak with the listeners about the three wellness domains and how practicing medicine in this way will reduce burnout and transform the culture of the organization? Because now we're shifting a little bit. You have uh, the three wellness domains that you were talking, and you're part of Wellness MD or WellMD. Is that correct? Yes, it's called WellMD. That's the organization at Stanford that's uh, committed to reducing burnout. Okay, well, the problem, if we are speaking today to healthcare professionals, they're going to get this. Um, It does say here, happiness handbook for healthcare professionals. So I want to make sure we get to maybe those people that are out there that are listening that are healthcare professionals or in some way in it. So what would you advocate? Well, first of all, uh, as you know from the book, the the WellMD program as a rubric of the drivers and potential solutions to burnout. And so you can imagine a pie cut in thirds and one third is related to the culture of medicine. Uh, The next third is related to the efficiency of our practice. And the final third is represented by personal resilience. So our culture efficiency and resilience are the three domains, if you will, that we can address with respect to the problem of burnout, both as drivers and and solutions. So, for example, the culture of medicine has been, for example, that uh, we always take care of the patient first at any cost, including cost to our own health and well-being. And I think this needs to shift, and it is shifting to some degree. We need to take care of ourselves first, and then we'll be better equipped to take care of our patients. So, for example... Uh, in the book, I have chapters on sleep, exercise, and nutrition, and I consider those the tripod of our physical well-being. So we need, as healthcare providers, to focus on our own sleep, improve our sleep hygiene so that we're, we're more rejuvenated and energetic uh, and better able to serve. And we not burned focus. out. <laughs> exactly. I we mean, you know, it's on- it's proven that sleep is like the number one. I don't know if it's number one, but I will tell you, for me, it's a big deal. And for and that's why all these watches measure sleep and, uh, you know, what level you're at and so on. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. What else would you uh, tell our listeners about this? Well, you know, so just on the culture. So we need to take care of our own sleep, exercise and nutrition with purpose. We need to do it intentionally. So I think the culture needs to be that, you know, physician heal thyself first, and then we can take better care of our patients. Another how, come element- the, how come the cafeterias in these places aren't getting better? And you see 
I'm going to just say this outright because I used to do a lot of work in health healthcare field. You would actually see the doctors and the nurses go out and have a cigarette outside. Then you'd see them go into a cafeteria and eat really shitty food. <laughs> Sorry to tell you that, but you know it's kind of like I think the people that are running these facilities need to get it. Hopefully, that's where you're getting to, huh? Well, you know that goes along with exactly what I was saying, Greg. That we need to heal ourselves first. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, by attending to our own health and well-being, you know, smoking will be clearly out of that, you know, domain. Should, should be. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, other things about the culture of medicine, you know, that it's been stigmatized when physicians need to get mental health for themselves. And that's uh, changing yeah. and should change. And, you know, the other cultural things like the micro and macro aggressions toward those of the opposite gender and, and various sexual preferences and ethnicity and so on. So these are all parts of the culture that contribute to burnout and we can change those. And I think things are gradually changing. The oh, next yeah, domain yeah. is efficiency because if we work in a clinic or a hospital that is terribly inefficient and results in our being in the clinic or hospital for an extra hour and a half or two hours every day, no matter how our culture and the culture at the, at the clinic or hospital is changing, and no matter how resilient we are, we're not going to be very happy. So we do need to look at efficiency. And, and an example of that is that, you know, nowadays administrators are pressuring physicians who have a clinic practice to see more and more patients every day, but they're not given more treatment rooms, more tech support, more nursing support, uh, room turnover. So the patients are lining up in the waiting area, um, becoming more and more upset. And then they're also dissatisfied because they don't have much time with their physician. So they fill out the uh, inevitable survey of patient satisfaction and the physician's Prescani scores go down. And the administration then comes down on the physician for having uh, uh, their Prescani score going down when in fact, this was all out of their control. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a, issue related to practice efficiency. So the leadership needs to take responsibility for this. And I think largely the culture of medicine is driven by leadership, setting the example and, and the tone as well. So those are two of the three domains. And the third is really the one that's most up to us as individuals, and that's our personal resilience. And that's really the thing that I'm most interested in and the reason that I wrote this book. Yeah. Well, obviously you've got You've got the basis covered, and obviously with this uh, WellMD, you have the background behind the, the other elements to speak about those as well. So thank you for that, because I think there are people out there who are listening that would appreciate that. Now, Greg, the book's about bringing happiness to the healthcare professional. That In the end game, that's it. Uh, happiness levels are measured in many different ways. Um, what brings people happiness? And you tell a compelling story about a young adolescent patient as a result of complications from a heart surgery. Um, you lost her. Um, and when healthcare professionals have to deal with death on a regular basis, how does your practice of the gain process allow them to deal with these issues easier to return more quickly to the state of happiness. Now we know the acronym now for GAIN, and we know all what all those letters stand for. But this story to me was pretty compelling in the book. Um, 
And I think it's the issue for them to return more quickly to the state of happiness and peace uh, and within themselves. And I'm going to say forgiveness. Um, You know, to me, forgiveness is a big thing. We blame ourselves. And even as you wrote in the book about this young lady, as a reader, I took it a bit that you blamed yourself. And obviously, like you said 15 minutes ago, we're trying to predict what we need to do in the future to prevent something like for this happening and prepare for that. But sometimes stuff happens and we do blame ourselves. And so let's go into this forgiveness part, because to me, this question is really about forgiveness. Sure. Well, there's a chapter in the book that was co-written by Fred Luskin, who's kind of one of the real gurus of compassion and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, One can also approach forgiveness through the elements of gain, because acceptance, for example, um, that was the patient that you're referring to was a teenager who was on the obese side, who had a cardiac catheterization procedure. And, um, it was difficult to measure her blood pressure with a blood pressure cuff from the beginning. Um, so it was getting intermittent failure of the cuff to read her blood pressure. And then the procedure took a long time. They had to, uh, go transeptal, meaning they had to puncture the atrial septum to get to the left atrium. Um, in order to ablate the arrhythmia focus. And uh, after the procedure, she was, uh, her heart rate was a little elevated. Her blood pressure seemed a little soft. She was a little bit agitated and we did an echo and it looked okay, according to the cardiology fellow who did it. And I was watching as well. It turns out that, um, you know, then she had a cardiac arrest and, and sustained a brain injury. And, she had what I suspected she might have all along, which is a pericardial effusion or pericardial hemorrhage and tamponade. And um, even though I suspected that, we did a number of uh, tests and, and maneuvers to rule it in or out. And the agreement was that it was ruled out. But in fact, um, we made a mistake and she did have that and it, it caused her demise. And so I have to accept that and I incorporated this into my morning game meditation and still do at times that we are imperfect and that, you know, bad things will happen to good people and there's nothing I can do to change that. And Mm -hmm. so I think with regard to forgiveness and forgiving myself, the two elements that I really focus on are accepting that bad outcomes are just part of medicine, especially in my areas of critical care and anesthesiology. And the other thing is non-judgment. I have to look at the world and then myself uh, non-judgmentally. And so that's a way of forgiving myself is both acceptance and non-judgment of myself. And so, yes, I agree that if we are in medicine uh, for more than a short period of time, we're going to have issues about which we can beat ourselves up. Uh, You know, our patients' outcomes are not always going to be perfect. Right. And we are going to do things. It's, it's a little bit like parenting, Greg. You know, there's no roadmap. You come to a fork in the road, and although Yogi Berra would have us, when you come to a fork in the road, <laughs> take it, you have to make a decision. You know, should I treat my child with, with empathy, or do I need to be firm and a disciplinarian and 
we don't ever really know what's right until later. And the same thing happens in life in general and in medicine in particular. So we make decisions given the best of our ability with the information at hand, but they will not always be the right decisions. And, and we have to be accepting and non-judgmental of those uh, experiences. Very good. And that, that chapter with Fred, where it's dialogue back and forth, I'll just tell my listeners again, there's the book. Uh, that part on the compassion and forgiveness is awesome. Now, to kind of sum up here, uh, Greg, kind of sum up the whole book, sum up our podcast. Um, you're going to leave the listeners with advice on the use of gain uh, and the method, which you've talked about. You talk four minutes per day that could change their lives. That's what you say. It's four minutes. Um, this is not a very long time. A lot of people that meditate think, oh my God, I've got to do it for an hour. <laughs> it's not going to do any good. Or I should at least do it for a half an hour. Uh, it could change their lives. Um, what would you want to inform them of and how this very short four minutes a day, um, and you said in the morning, but I'm also assuming that you want them to do it in the evening <laughs> uh, because there is a connection there. But what, what would you want to leave them with? There's just one you know, snippet here. I think, Greg, many people uh, are taught meditation and they, they think they fail. One is because they're sitting for too long. They're told not to move or scratch an itch or what have you. Right. And the other thing is they're told that they should empty their mind of all thoughts. And so that's why I'm offering... One, something that's very can be very short, um, and two, uh, providing a stream of thoughts essentially that they can focus on rather than trying to empty their minds completely. It's a contemplative form of meditation. So I don't. I want them to not fail, and that's why I've made it. You can do this in as little as three minutes, or four minutes, or five minutes, um, and you can't fail. And so the reason I do it in the morning is it really kind of sets the tone for the day. The game meditation itself can be three minutes or four minutes. And once you've kind of started thinking about these four elements of game, you can then employ them throughout the day. So you're driving in your car to work and another driver changes lanes in front of you without using the turn signal and you start to make judgments. That person is a bad driver, blah, blah, blah. And then you catch yourself and you realize, I just did my game meditation and the N is for non-judgment. Why don't I just drop the judgment of that person? I don't know them. Uh, it's not appropriate for me to judge them as good or bad. I'll certainly be better off if I drop the judgment. And so, lo and behold, you feel better when you just drop that judgment. And so, yeah. the game meditation itself may be three or four minutes, but when employing the elements into our daily lives... Uh, it really is potentially quite an expansive way to be. Well, I I believe, like you do, that um, change is constant and flux is constant. And I just uh, spoke with an author that's going to be on, wrote a book called Flux. She starts out of her TED Talk with uh, her sister calling her, saying that uh, you got to sit down, you got to sit down, Well, as, as it was. Both of her parents were killed in an automobile accident. And she knew that from that point forward, change was constant. That, that the world is ever-changing, as you said, and we can't resist it. 
And I think the most important thing your book does is put this in perspective. This little gain technique, however you want to call it, allows a person to get through the day and deal with the changes, the fluctuations, the things they have to deal with, uh, not in a resisting way, but in a way where they can accept it and say, that is what happened today, right? I've got to move on with it. And I appreciate you for that because this community, your community, your fellow travelers on the healthcare uh, arena need this, but not just them. I know it says happiness for healthcare professionals on here, but really, honestly, this book is for anybody. And I'm going to say that to my listeners. Go to uh, greghammermd.com. We're going to put that in the blog and go up there and check out his website. Get a copy of this book. He's got links there. We're going to have a link to Amazon to get the book. It's an easy read. You can get it in the Kindle version as well. Uh, Greg, a pleasure having you on the say. Namaste to you, my friend. Appreciate your time and uh, your thoughtfulness and doing what you're doing. You're continuing on your healing work, but now you're just doing it in a little different way. So thanks so much. Thank you, Greg. It's wonderful to be with you. I look forward to our next connection.